the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another installment of The Dan Proft Show. Thanks for joining us. Before we get into uh, current developments... With respect to Iran, Mike Pompeo addressing the assembled D.C. press corps today. Uh, A couple of uh, instant classics from just a few years ago for some additional context in the way this is being discussed and certainly covered. Uh, How about this one? This is a former secretary of state. Her name is Hillary Clinton. So, I mean, that is the land of unconfirmed. Yes, we came. We saw. (laughs) He died. (laughs) Did it have anything to do with your visit? No, I'm sure it did. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Not exactly Veni Vidi Vici, but uh, that was Hillary Clinton yucking it up with CBS News after the death of Muammar Gaddafi, after Gaddafi was taken out in Libya. Um, didn't pose quite the same imminent threat to America, American interests, arguably, that Soleimani did. How is that being treated differently? And then there's uh, you know good old Joe Biden in 2010 talking about uh, Iraq and uh, looking forward to a Iraq being one of uh, the Obama administration's great success stories. I am very optimistic about uh, about Iraq. I think it's going to be one of the great achievements of this administration. You're going to see 90,000 American troops come marching home by the uh, end of the summer. You're going to see a stable government in Iraq that is actually moving toward a representative government. I spend, I've been there 17 times now. I go about every two months, three months. Uh, I know every one of the major players in all the segments of that society. Uh, it's impressed me. I've been impressed uh, how they have been deciding to use the political process rather than guns to settle their differences. Uh, Joe, would you like to revise and extend your answer a decade later, particularly after you and uh, President Obama cut short the surge, particularly uh, after uh, you created you were part of the administration that created the vacuum there that allowed Iran to insinuate itself and influence the future of Iraq? particularly since you and uh, that administration were instrumental in giving the mullahs in Tehran the impression that they could act with impunity with respect to America and the West. Oh, and by the way, uh, just to borrow from Carly Fiorina, talking about Hillary Clinton, travel is not an accomplishment. You can, you know, many people go to church, if you understand. Many, you can do 17 trips to Iraq and not know what the hell you're talking about, and you're a good example of that, aren't you, Joe? Mike Pompeo tackled some of the issues that uh, the press has been beating the drum for on behalf of congressional Democrats, starting with whether or not uh, cultural targets will be uh, among those potentially zeroed in on in any 
retaliation to any retaliation by the United States. Here's Pompeo. Yes, ma'am. How are you? Thank you very much. A question about the issue of cultural sites, because the president said on Air Force One coming back after you had been on the Sunday talk shows that they're allowed to kill our people. They're allowed to torture and maim our people. They're allowed to use roadside bombs and blow up our people. And we're not allowed to touch their cultural sites. It doesn't work that way. Uh, Defense Secretary Esper has made it clear that he would not follow an order to hit a cultural site would would be a war crime. I'm wondering what, whether you would also push back in your advice or in your in your role. Uh, You're not really secondly, wondering, Andrea. <laughs> You're not really wondering. I was unambiguous on Sunday. It is completely consistent with what the president has said. Nope, uh, we, will, we, will take, we will take every action we take will be consistent with the international rule of law. And uh, you, you, the American people can rest assured that that's the case. Out, Let me tell you who's done damage to the Persian culture. It's not the United States of America. It's the Ayatollah. Yeah. Uh, so good pushback against Andrea Mitchell there on point. Uh, that should put that to bed. Uh, what about the matter of uh, proving up the intelligence that you referenced that uh, led you to conclude that there was an imminent threat posed by Soleimani? Anytime a president makes a decision, finally, there's been much made about this question of intelligence and imminence. I I answered it multiple times on Sunday. I'm happy to to walk through it again. Anytime a president makes a decision of this magnitude, there are multiple pieces of information that come before us. We presented that to him in all its broad detail. We gave him all the best information that came not only from the intelligence community, but for those of us who have uh, teams in the field. We evaluated the relevant risks and uh, the opportunity that we thought might present itself at some point. Uh, and we could see clearly that uh, not only had Soleimani done all of the things that we have recounted, right, hundreds of thousands, a massacre in Syria, uh, enormous destruction of countries like Lebanon and Iraq, where they've denied them sovereignty and the, the Iranians have really denied people in those two countries what it is they want, right, sovereignty, independence and freedom. These are, this is all Soleimani's handiwork. Uh, and then we'd watch as he was continuing the terror campaign in the region. Uh, we know what happened uh, at the end of last year in December, ultimately leading to the death of an American. So if you're looking for imminence, you need to look no further than the days that led up to the strike that was taken against Soleimani. And uh, Pompeo also uh, suggested perhaps the D.C. press corps could apply a little bit of that skepticism to the pronouncements coming from the mullahs. This, that skepticism they otherwise uh, reserve for the Trump administration. Uh, uh, his first statement that is Soleimani was traveling to Baghdad on a diplomatic mission. Anybody here believe that? Is there any history that would indicate that it was remotely possible that this kind gentleman, this diplomat of great order, Soleimani, had traveled to Baghdad for the idea of conducting a peace mission? I, I, I made you reporters laugh this morning. That's fantastic. Uh, we know that wasn't true. We not only know the history, uh, we know in that moment that was not true. Zarif is a propagandist of the First Order, uh, and most of what you suggested in his uh, text message or email or message that you laid out there uh, was indeed uh, Iranian propaganda. It's not new. We've heard these same lies before. Uh, it's fundamentally false. He was not there on a diplomatic vision. And one of the perjurious statements that the D.C. press corps continues to suborn is on the the issue of legality. Mitch McConnell, Senate Majority Leader, took to the Senate floor yesterday 
to address that and uh, employ the perspective of one former Obama Department of Homeland Security secretary to weigh in on the matter. If you believe everything that our government is saying about General Soleimani, he was a lawful military objective and the president under his constitutional authority as commander in chief had ample domestic legal authority to take him out without, without an additional congressional authorization. Whether he was a terrorist or a general in a military force that was engaged in armed attacks against our people, he was a lawful military objective. That the former Secretary of Homeland Security in the Obama administration, Jay Johnson. Well, that should help clear up a lot of the confusion. Let's take a couple calls here. Holly in St. Louis, you're on the Dan Prof Show. Dan, I love your show. Congratulations. Thank you. Uh, it turns out that I was a big Bush proponent of the surge way back when. But as I've gotten older and seen the failures of, of the nation-building scheme, I, I'm just no longer in the business of nation-building supporting. Mm-hmm. And until we find a way to monetize peace, we're in deep doo-doo in the Middle East because there's just no money in peace. As Tucker Carlson said last night, you just don't get rich and famous in Washington during peacetime. And this is a big problem for the United States, and it's time for us to get out. And I, uh, just a side note, I have a daughter that's a senior at the Naval Academy, and the closer she gets to graduating, the more of an isolationist I become. Yeah, I get uh, that. I understand that. Yeah, not her. She's ready to go. But it was disconcerting for her to hear skeptics of our Middle Eastern program, because she says you have to trust that everyone above you is doing the right thing because they're telling you what to do to an end that is just. Yes. And that's terrifying for her to hear a lot of pundits question whether or not anybody knows what our plan is and what we're doing. It's a disconcerting time. Thanks for the call, Holly. Appreciate it. Yeah, I mean, look, of course you ask questions, and yeah, you trust but verify, and if you find out somebody isn't acting consistent with their calling, then there has to be accountability as well. And like in any good organization, that includes the military, that includes intelligence agencies, it includes the federal government. Tom in Boise, Idaho, you're on Dan Prop Show. Oh, good morning. Thank you for taking my call. What concerns me with this president specifically, I'll go back to Bush and Obama, one that I voted for, one that I didn't, and express all the difficulties that a commander in chief has in various amounts of intelligence that he's going to get, various political advice that he's going to get. And as difficult uh, as these decisions are, Sometimes we don't know for for decades uh, if they made the right decision. It's true. Thanks for the call, Tom. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. And there were uh, two developments on the impeachment front. One statement issued by former National Security Advisor to the president. Uh, he is John Bolton, of course, posting this statement on his uh, PAC website, BoltonPAC.com, about uh, the prospect of him testifying. Of course, he's one of the four 
that Chuck Schumer and Democrats on the Hill want to testify during a Senate trial. Uh, and Bolton had previously said not going to testify until this matter of executive privilege is flushed out in the courts. Democrats in the House chose not to litigate the matter, chose not to take it to a court of law and get a ruling from a judge as to whether executive privilege applied where the president was applying it or uh, whether the president would have instead had to comply in whole or part with the requests that House Democrats were making for documents and witnesses. They could have done that, but if they had done that and had that case adjudicated, then, of course, that would have eliminated the basis for their second article of impeachment, obstruction of Congress. So that's why they didn't do it. Political decision, not a decision based on searching for the truth. Important distinction. So now back to Bolton. He writes, my colleague, Dr. Jane, uh, Charles uh, Kupperman, Faced with a House committee subpoena on the one hand and a presidential directive not to testify on the other, sought final resolution of this constitutional conflict from the federal judiciary. After my counsel informed the House committee that I would, too, seek judicial resolution of these constitutional issues, the committee chose not to subpoena me. Uh, And uh, he continues that he nevertheless publicly resolved to be guided by the outcome of Kupperman's case. Uh, The House committee went so far as to withdraw its subpoena to Kupperman in a deliberate attempt to moot the case and deprive the court of jurisdiction. Here we go again. Here, 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 I, you know, we go to the point I was making that they had this cooked up article of impeachment, obstruction of Congress, based on the president legitimately asserting his right and uh, the, leaving the Democrats with an option to litigate it and have a court potentially rule in their favor, potentially rule against them. Uh, but nonetheless, Bolton goes on to say, since my testimony is one against one, uh, once again an issue, I have to resolve the serious comp- competing issues as best I could. I've concluded that if the Senate issues a subpoena for my testimony, I'm prepared to testify. And this is uh, some sort of major breakthrough, the way it's being reported by the Beltway big government uh, media. Is it? Uh, Bolton's position is the exact same position of Joe Biden, at least his latest position. He wasn't going to comply with a subpoena. At least that's what he told the Des Moines Register editorial board. But then he tweeted after the fact that, of course, he would. He always ab- uh, abides and obeys lawful orders. So, uh, you know, the prospect of witnesses, not one that I suggest the Senate Republicans encourage any more than witnesses were required during the Clinton impeachment 20 years ago. There were no witnesses. There were the opposing sides that presented their case and. Then the Senate voted their respective shares, and that's what should happen here. Josh Howley, Republican senator from Missouri, was on uh, Fox and Friends yesterday. and He basically said, look, uh, we're not going to let Pelosi just drag this out, sit on this. There there has to she's and and try uh, mostly in her own mind to what leverage the Senate rules that she desires for the purposes of this trial, not going to give you the articles of impeachment unless you agree to the terms set forth by Chuck Schumer. I don't think so. So the way to move this along, which is where the majority of the American people seem to be, is to put her on a clock. And Josh Howley wants to put her on a 25 day clock to produce the articles or move what would be the impeachment equivalent of a motion to dismiss.
You know, Nancy Pelosi is attempting to obstruct a Senate trial. That's all there is to it. The Constitution says that the Senate is the one that will have the trial. It says the trial will follow the impeachment. Now she's trying to prevent a Senate trial. She's trying to obstruct it. She's trying to upend the Constitution. So here's what I think needs to happen. We need to change the Senate rules to allow the Senate to dismiss this case if she refuses to send the articles over. The Senate has to act. We've got to say, send us these articles or we're moving on without you. Right. Uh, And this is an option that's still present. Of course, they uh, McConnell, for optics purposes, wants to be patient to an extent. But if Pelosi thinks that she's going to drag this out uh, to the State of the Union through the Iowa caucus to have this story run interference for the president, uh, you know, doing what presidents do at the State of the Union address in an election year, tout his accomplishments, lay out his forward looking agenda, not just for 2020, but for a second term and uh, dominate the news that day, set the terms of debate, if you will, in discussion. Well, she doesn't want to do that. And if he's still under the cloud of impeachment, then perhaps that will detract from that opportunity for the president come to say the union address. There's no way Republicans can let this go on for another month. Not like this. No way they can let House Democrats and Senate Democrats, but particularly House Democrats, have the run of the field to complain about process, to complain about uh, partisanship in the Senate after the exhibition of partisanship they conducted in the House. I'm talking about people like Maxine Waters prattling on, although this probably helps the case, actually, the president's case and and popular opinion for the president. Uh, Maxine Waters, though, the argument is the same. She's actually staying on message, not something she's want to do. Maxine Waters and MSNBC. All I know at this point is uh, that the speaker has said, tell us what the rules are and we'll be happy to transmit. We're not withholding uh, simply because we have them in under our control. We just want to know what the rules of the game are. Sure. OK. The rules are we set the rules. Just like the rules were, you set the rules in the House. And uh, how about these rules? We'll apply the same protocols that were applied during the Clinton impeachment. That would mean no witnesses. And I go back to something Trey Gowdy, former prosecutor, uh, said uh, the other day on, on Fox News. I think I mentioned it yesterday as well. Look, you don't want any surprises. If you haven't interviewed these witnesses, if you haven't done what's tantamount to trial prep, then why would you go down this road? It was the House's responsibility to gather the evidence. It's the House managers, whoever Nancy Pelosi appoints, their job to present the evidence, to present their case, just as House Republicans did back 20 years ago in the Clinton case. And then it's up for the Senate to vote. So pull it together and call your shares. By the way, how uh, mission critical is this? How focused are Congressional Democrats on this? Well, they have the fierce urgency of maybe we'll get around to it if and when there's some political advantage to be had. How top of mind is it? Funny story. House Majority Leader Steny Hoyer, that'd be Pelosi's number two, he sent a memo out to uh, his colleagues outlining the uh, legislative agenda for the coming legislative year as they return from recess. Talking about oh, things like chemical regulation measures and the expansion of 5G telecom systems and so forth. Nowhere in there anything about impeachment. <laughs> Nothing about impeachment. 
and yet uh, this is an existential threat to the republic. These people are not prayerful, and they're not serious, and the Republicans need to move this in the Senate. This is the Dan Prop Show. Political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Prof, and this is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. And when CNN isn't trying to whip the American people into a frenzy about a fictional World War III. They're taking out after the Babylon Bee. CNN's Donnie O'Sullivan going after the Babylon Bee, which is a satirical site, if you're not familiar with it, you know, like The Onion, for uh, headlines and associated stories <laughs> like uh, the U.S. is deploying Jack Wilson to uh, to to and terrorists are in a panic. Right. Some people some people believe that Jack Wilson, you know, the hero of the the church shooting outside of Fort Worth, they think he's really uh, being deployed and and he's really going to be our secret weapon against uh, against the uh, Islamic Republic of Iran. Um, Maybe there's some people that believe that. Does it rise to the level of concern for what is supposed to be a legitimate news outlet? The story that got uh, Donnie O'Sullivan all in a twist was. Democrats call for flags to be flown at half mast to grieve death of Soleimani. And uh, he's upset about that because uh, he believes, it, number one, it's being shared as much as CNN stories on social media. And number two, he saw some action on social media that suggests some people actually thought Democrats call for uh, U.S. flags to be flown at half mast to grieve the death of Soleimani, which, of course, is parody, satirical. It's a joke which is what the D.C. press corps has become, hasn't it? For more on this topic, we're pleased to be joined by friend of the show, Laura Logan, former CBS News foreign correspondent. You remember her from 60 Minutes. She's got a new series, Laura Logan Has No Agenda, on Fox Nation, and episodes one and two are available now. Laura, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me, Dan. What about uh, CNN uh, taking the time to uh, try to make sure people know satire is satire? Well, what I find so interesting about that is is that um, CNN is not more concerned with what uh, they're putting out on their network. You know, does have people already forgotten Don Lemon saying that white men are the greatest terrorist threat to this country, mm. and then citing a government report, you know, with statistics to back it up, doubling down on what he said when he was criticized, without factoring in the fact that Islamic terrorists you know, um, are fighting all over the world. There's the largest coalition since the Second World War of allied armies, uh, you know, that are fighting with them on a daily basis um, just to keep things contained. I mean, that's just one example of the full context for that information. And um, never mind the fact that, you know, there is no army of white men whose entire ideology depends on the complete annihilation of this country and everything it stands for and all of its values, right? So those kind of comparisons, they're, they're damaging, they're untrue, they're basically false, and CNN endorses that. 
I mean, I think that they should be much more concerned about what's on their own air. My opinion, since you're asking me my opinion, yeah. is they should be more concerned about what they're putting out and not worry about the Babylon Bee. And maybe uh, WAPO should, too, since democracy dies in the darkness. So their story about uh, that pro- provides sort of Benghazi context to the uh, response to the attack on the U.S. Embassy and the attack that killed a U.S. A US contractor and injured four soldiers that ultimately led President Trump to decide to strike Soleimani when the opportunity presented itself. In their reporting on Benghazi and Washington Post, they talk about two Americans who died at the Benghazi compound. Um, somebody get them a copy of 13 Hours wow. stat. I mean, I, I, I think a lot of, wow. Ameri- a lot of Americans uh, still know the names, Glenn Doherty, Ty Woods, Chris geez. Stevens, Sean Smith. They said two died. Now, that's unbelievable. Yeah, I, well, wait, wait. I got a, I've got one that's equally as good. How about on the anniversary the, of 9-11, the New York Times tweeting out that 17 years ago today, planes attacked the World Trade Center. Right. It's now the planes. Planes, right? yeah, right. Yeah, just yeah. Gun, they, the planes did it on their own. Guns shoot and planes attack. Right, and, and also, I mean, again, just in the context of this uh, heightened uh, tension with Iran, uh, the way that they're being characterized, or, including uh, chastising politicians for uh, characterizing terrorists as terrorists, uh, with respect to Soleimani as a revered general, just like al-Baghdadi was an austere religious scholar. That's really something that has um, taken my breath away at times. Um, I have to be honest. It's it's sort of staggering um, to see this kind of reporting because um, – th- Qasem Soleimani, if there's any uh, reporter that has been on the ground in the Middle East, knows um, what what Soleimani and the Quds Force have been responsible for. I mean, yeah, when they showed pictures of uh, Soleimani's funeral, what about the literally hundreds of thousands of funerals that he has had a hand in, in causing Laura, over La- the last La- few decades? Uh, where were the pictures of those funerals? I mean, um, La- and they La- want La- to have I, it both La- ways. Let me, just, let me just hold you there. We've got to take a break, but I want to come okay. back and pick up our conversation. We're talking to Laura Logan, host of the new series, Laura Logan Has No Agenda on Fox Nation. This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We're talking to Laura Logan, former CBS News foreign correspondent. New series, Laura Logan Has No Agenda on Fox Nation, and episodes one and two of that program are now available. Laura, before the break, we were talking about uh, the uh, D.C. press course coverage of Soleimani. And uh, in spite of what they're hearing from people who know across, frankly, the political spectrum, uh, from General Petraeus to Jay Johnson, uh, about Soleimani as one of the lead purveyors of terrorism in the world for the last two decades at least. Uh, there's a lot of soft peddling of Soleimani because we have to find a way to blame President Trump for doing something wrong. Well, this is what I would say as a journalist, right? It doesn't, whether it's General Petraeus or Jay Johnson, whoever it is, you don't have to take their word for it, right? right. You can, but you don't have to. Why? Because look at the law. The United States government has designated 
Qasem Soleimani as a terrorist. They have designated the, the organization that he ran, the Quds Force, Iran's Revolutionary Guards, as a terrorist group. They have designated Iran, the government of Iran, the rulers of Iran, the mullahs, as the number one state sponsor of terrorism year after year after year. That is a legal definition. Go to the law. You're a journalist. Go to the law and read what it says and then find out what it actually means. Because I, I, I actually, Dan, if you'll indulge me, I want to tell you a story sure. that for me captured what it meant at the time. Iran was responsible for designing, engineering, producing, and then proliferating a particular type of weapon on the Iraqi battlefield called an explosively formed penetrator, an EFP. And this was, is a copper cylinder and that basically gets turned into an armor-piercing bomb. And it can slice, it slice through the armor of Humvees and MRAPs and other um, U.S. military vehicles, right? And it devastated U.S. forces on the battlefield. And I interviewed many years ago in Afghanistan. I spent time with a unit, and the commander there told me this story. It was, it was uh, off the record. It was a, uh, you know, a private moment. It was not for broadcast because you couldn't put this kind of thing on television, especially at the time. And he told me about the day when his forces encountered an EFP on the battlefield. This man had multiple purple hearts, okay? I mean, his, his troops were like ping pong balls. That's how many times they were blown up. They were just, it was exploding all over Bakuba um, in Iraq. And the, he said the day that they got hit by an EFP, he knew something was different. It was the first one. He was close by when they got the radio call that, it, that one of their units had been hit. And so he answered and said, I'll go over there. And he had to park his, his vehicle stop his vehicle, he got out, and he starts to walk towards the Humvee. And he said to me, I knew immediately that something was different. And I said, why? And he said, because all of the windows of the Humvee were completely and utterly covered in blood. You couldn't see into the vehicle. And I'd never seen that before. He walks up to the front passenger door, and he opens the door, and he said to me, and my soldier's head rolled off into my arms. Yes. I had to catch it. That copper charge, that explosively formed penetrator, had gone through the armor of the Humvee. It had sliced the gunner in half, so there was just half his body hanging there from the gunner's turret. It had sliced through the driver. It had cut off the head of the passenger in the front side, and it had basically laid waste to the squad of U.S. soldiers inside that vehicle. The thing I could not understand at the time was why was the United States government not not being honest about the threat, about the fact that Iranian militias who were, Qasem Soleimani was tasked to manage those proxy forces and those militias as a strategic arm of Iran's foreign policy, the mullahs, right? These are not separate things. They are part and parcel. They're all part of Iran's foreign policy and strategy at the time. And he was the man who was running that on behalf of them and doing it extremely well because, um, because they, you know, Iran is very successful at this. They've been doing it a long time and they know what they're doing. And at the time, I could not understand why we were hiding it and not being honest about it and not owning it and not doing anything about it. Uh, it's, a, it's an incredible story. And it also speaks to the way, going back to the press, these matters are covered. It's almost as if they have adopted the infamous Stalin incantation uh, that uh, one death is a tragedy and a million is a statistic. 
1,500 Iranian protesters killed by the mullahs. That's a statistic. 4,000 U.S. troops killed in Iraq. That's a statistic. Soleimani being turned into a stain on the road. And this is something where we're trying to determine whether it's a tragedy. Well, you know, I have to say there is one thing that really bothers me about this, and it's and it's the it's that you can have so many politicians and so-called experts and other people that you put on air and every single one of them, um, you know, on CNN and MSNBC and, and other shows is saying the president broke the law. This is illegal, mm-hmm. right? It's either illegal or it's not illegal, okay? You have to figure that out as a media organization. You have a responsibility as journalists and a responsibility to your view- viewers, right? Not to, it's not, that's not an opinion, okay? It's either true or it's not true. And, is it illegal or is it not illegal? Did the president act illegally or did he not? And, and, Find and, out what the law says. Find out what the authority is. And then don't put people on your air if you figure out that what they're saying is not true. Don't keep perpetuating something that is absolutely not true. And how do we know it's not true? Well, number one, because go look at the law. Go look at the Constitution. Go look at the, at the powers and the authorities, right? But number two, the proof of that is in the fact that no one's doing anything about it. Right. If it's illegal, then there is a legal sanction that can be applied. So nobody's even talking about applying that legal sanction. No one's even discussing it because that shows you that all these people going out there saying the president broke the law. They know that's not true. Yeah. So what is the responsibility of media organizations who put people on air knowing that what they're saying isn't true. Yeah, point blank. Um, if it's illegal, what are you going to do about it? How about drafting another article of impeachment? The House has the power, right? If he committed an illegal act, if he committed a war crime, if you're going to buy the line of uh, mindless celebrities like Colin Kaepernick, then do something about it to prove that you're not just posturing, that you really think that this crossed the line. But but you can't have it both ways, as you're saying. The other thing I would say, too, is the standard. Did you apply the same standard of analysis when it was Obama authorizing 2,800 missile strikes in Syria and Iraq uh, five and six and seven years ago without congressional authorization. Are we consistent in our understanding of what the law is and applying it consistently to relevant fact patterns? And that just doesn't seem to be the case, I'm sorry to say. Laura Logan, we're going to have to leave it there. Laura Logan, former CBS News foreign correspondent, her new series you got to check out, Laura Logan Has No Agenda on Fox Nation, episodes one and two, Available now. Laura, thanks so much for joining us on the Dan Prosper. Thank you for having me, Dan. Appreciate it. Take care. This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show and uh, Ricky Gervais, host of the Golden Globes on Sunday night. We talked a little bit about it yesterday, uh, played some of his uh, more entertaining zingers. He uh, tweeting out today in response to some of the negative feedback he's receiving. How the F can teasing huge corporations and the richest, most privileged people in the world be considered right wing? So that's what he really takes offense at is being called right wing because he did. Uh, he, uh, many felt like he did conservatives bidding by putting it between the eyes of all of those uh, you know, vainglorious elites that were assembled to congratulate themselves for the Golden Globes. It's interesting. Uh, and he and he's sort of tongue in cheek about it. I mean, remember, Gervais is a man to the left. Make no doubt. Make no doubt. Uh, have no doubt about it. 
he gave an interview in Spectator uh, the end of December, so in advance of hosting the Golden Globes, in which he in which he just basically said, look, I'm not going to apologize for my jokes. He uh, he said uh, these days you, you, you can't tell a joke if you're going to have to try to game uh, game plan for anybody who might be offended for any reason. He's like, why did the chicken ro- cross the road? Hey, hey, my chicken died yesterday. You can't make fun of that. And so just said, look, you either have to take people uh, give people sort of the benefit of the doubt that they're here to make you laugh. They're here to to provide satire. They're here to violate premises. Uh, they're here to be uh, avant-garde and irreligious and not have any sacred cow or take sacred cows that many people have and violate them. That's sort of comedy. He uh, goes on to say in this interview, you can make jokes about race without being racist. The people who've had to endure real racism throughout their lives are the ones being hurt because now the term racist is meaningless. It went from someone who was filled with vitriol and hate and oppressed particular races to meaning a bloke who didn't let you park where you want. Yeah, it cheapens it. So, I mean, he certainly sort of gets the joke about the woke left that he was ridiculing, but uh, they don't get the joke about themselves Calling Ricky Gervais here, story in the Hollywood Reporter column, the whiteness of Toy Story 4. Yes, Toy Story 4, a tool of white supremacy. Uh, Why did a slightly bitter taste linger after I watched Toy Story 4, offers this Hollywood Reporter flack, a sense that something was naggingly wrong. Because in many ways, Toy Story 4's worldview seems like an Eisenhower-era fantasy, a vision of America that might have come from the most diehard reactionary. Lovely if you're wealthy and white, but alarming if you're black or brown or gay or a member of any other minority. In other words, more than half the U.S. uh, population. And this, again, is what Gervais is talking about, the idea that you can't make a story unless the, you know, full panoply of humanity is represented, like everything needs to be a Benetton ad. I'm dating myself, but you get the point. Uh, so Gervais continues to poke the Hollywood bear, and conservatives will continue to enjoy watching, even though he's not one of us. This is the Dan Prof Show. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to The Dan Proft Show. In a recent piece in City Journal, documentarian Chris Rufo pointed out the movement to abolish police forces. Yes. In academic circles, and that's being translated down to street-level activists. Think of your professional protesters and Black Lives Matter organizations and those similar to it. Abolish police departments. You had a candidate run for city council in Seattle that ran on the platform of abolishing the Seattle police. You're talking about a Democrat Socialist Party that sort of starts from that philosophical premise when, for example, AOC and the other Socialist Spice Girls talk about abolishing ICE. Yeah. We've talked about what's happened in Chicago pre-consent decree and 
and post, I mean, where actually the consent decree was rescinded by the Trump administration, but <laughs> Chicago police went ahead and said, no, we'll abide it anyway. Remarkable. Okay. Uh, the uh, decline in the number of stops. And so the decline in the deterrent effect that those legitimate stops had. Listen to what Atlanta police are doing. Atlanta Police Chief Erica Shields told her staff on Friday the entire department would have a zero chase policy effective immediately. Zero chase. You are not allowed to give chase. This comes after a couple of high speed chases that resulted in tragedy last year. High speed chase where there was a car accident then and a couple of people were killed. But listen to what she says. As she makes this decision, she announces this decision. Chief Shields, this is the CBS affiliate reporting in Atlanta. Chief Shields acknowledged in her email the decision, quote, will not be a popular decision. And more disconcerting to me personally is that this decision may drive crime up. If you think there's a prospect that a decision would drive crime up and you're the, the chief of police, right? 312-642-5600, 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line, 64636-DA, turnkey.pro text line. You uh, think police should uh, yeah, leisurely pursue fleeing suspects. So this is, this is the mindlessness of zero tolerance. Any time the phrase zero tolerance is used, I cringe. Because what it says is we're going to eliminate human judgment. We think we have a policy that can contemplate and most effectively deal with every situation that you can imagine. There are no such policies. And the police chief can, I mean, I just can't believe she made that statement. It's probably going to increase crime, and that's really upsetting to me. Then why are you doing it? So there has to be a reason why they're doing it. I don't think it's just in reaction to a couple of unfortunate events, a couple of tragic events where people were killed in recent police chases. This is there's no question. I don't know the particulars of Atlanta politics, but I have a strong feeling that if it's not in the interest of crime reduction and public safety, then it's in the interest of appeasing elements of the population that are antagonistic towards police. You can bet there is race identity politics at play here as well. Joe in Villa Park. Why don't you say if you're involved in a police chase, it's an automatic 10 years in jail. That'll stop these chases almost in their tracks. It's one. I mean, maybe if I, I've, I've got an arrest warrant for something that's for a misdemeanor, maybe I don't want to run from police and risk a felony conviction and mandatory prison time. I mean, there's maybe something to that. I mean, the other thing, too, is don't forget. I mean, there have been these cases, too, where police have used have committed a reckless disregard for human life in these chases and they've been held to account too professionally and sometimes criminally so it's not like there are no remedies for a police officer that makes a terrible judgment call with respect to a chase any more than there there are not remedies for a police officer who makes a terrible judgment call with respect to use of deadly force there are remedies jerry on the northwest side when someone runs from the police and there's a death or a injury that occurs, the person that took off should be held liable, uh, not the police officer. Yeah, but, okay, so so you're former police, I, I take it? Yes. So, I mean, in terms of the uh, purpose of the police department, which is to provide for the public safety? 
is having trial lawyers essentially dictate police policy? Is that in the interest of public safety? I don't think it's in the interest of public safety, but unfortunately, it's very real. It does determine how policies are put in place. You know, if, if you have a family member that's struck and killed by a vehicle that's being chased by the police, you'll have the opinion that the police should have never chased him. You know, this goes back to training as well, that unless there's a, a violent felony yeah. that was committed, but to make that determination at the scene is usually impossible. Right. You don't have the information. Right. Yeah. Thanks for the call, Jerry. Appreciate it. So uh, bank robbery, you know, they're armed and dangerous and obviously dangerous because they just robbed a bank and they're armed and you got you get called no police chase. Wait till they stop. What if somebody poses an imminent threat and you, they've committed a, a crime? They're out committing other crimes and they pose an imminent threat. And you're like, well, I, just, I can't chase them. So we're going to have to, you know, corner him on foot or some such thing. We're going to have to figure out a way to anticipate and cut off his path at some point. You know, but but going at the speed limit to get to whatever location we're trying to get to to close him in. I mean, then then what do people say? Hey, you had this guy. You could have chased him and caught him. And instead, he came to my neighborhood and he hurt or killed somebody. Harold in uh, New York, New York. I'm a retired police officer. Okay. And my son's a police officer, so I have some skin in the game. It looks like most of these people that are making these decisions don't live in high-crime neighborhoods. They, yeah. they sit back at a desk and they, and they make all of these policies and they dictate policy. But their neighborhoods are safe. They're usually gated communities where they don't have any contact with the real world. And for them to make policies and they don't have any contact with the real world, to me, if I was a cop today, I wish I was, I'd ride around and do absolutely nothing. Say hello to people, take a report every now and then, and keep it moving. Because as soon as you make a judgment call that's not conducive to their agenda, you're on the carpet. And everybody walks away from you. Nobody backs you up. You can get a million out of boys. You mess up one time and you're fired. Harold, I want to get your, since you're a former New York police officer, I want to get your your take, too. Did you see how uh, your governor there and your mayor are walking back that big bail reform measure that they uh, marshaled through the uh, assembly in New York after these these recent uh, incidents of hate crimes against uh, Jewish residents? Well, I kind of figured that was going to happen because everything these geniuses think up, think up, it's not related to the real world. <laughs> it's ridiculous. They should have never. I'm glad I'm out of New York. I don't live there anymore. Thanks for the call, Harold. We're familiar with that concept in Chicago, to be sure. Cook County. Pat in Lake Geneva. Milwaukee actually instituted that same no-chase policy a couple years back and then retracted it. And the cops were saying that they were having criminals drive right past them, flip them off, say, hey, we just stole this car, and just take off. And the cops would not even take their car out of park. Thanks, Pat. Vic on the north side. I'm a retired policeman. Sometimes if you're far enough behind and you put the lights on, the chase is already going to start. You got to get up behind the guy, and most people don't even check their rearview mirrors as often as they should. And then when you're close enough, like within 20 feet, you put the lights on. Now you got them like in your uh, captured mode. Bill in LaSalle County. Hey, wasn't uh, Zania Brothers and Boston? They were on a, a car chase too. So what would have happened if we were to just let them go? Mm, yeah. The other bill in Crown Point. Hey, good morning, guys. So I just want to throw out something else as far as, like, the devil's advocate. Guys on the uh, sport bikes, you know, the fellow that mentioned uh, a 10-year penalty, you know, that should stop it immediately. Eh, I don't think so. Sport bikes were you know, enhanced penalties, and it kind of emboldened them. 
you know, some of these guys just think that you know, these, these super bikes can't be caught and therefore they do their best to outrun them. I mean, 1990, 1993 Ford Mustangs were told in Jacksonville, Florida, that they were not to be, you know, pursued because they couldn't catch them. So it emboldens, it emboldens them when you're, you know, provided with either enhancements or, you know, holding the police officers from doing their tasks. It emboldens in any direction. Thanks for the call. Maybe we just have police escorts for uh, criminals. Just have everybody just have a police escort to keep you know, safety on the roads to wherever they're going. Uh, you can, the escort can attach after they've been bonded out to pending trial. Margo in Burr Ridge. So I'm a retail store owner and I had a thief in the store and I chased her. She had merchandise and I chased her for three blocks and then I detained her until the police got there. She was larger than me. I'm like 5'2 and 100 pounds. And everybody was coming into the shop and saying, I heard you chase this woman. And I said, yes, I did. We said, why? He said, because she's going to do it to somebody else. You give these people a little bit of success and they figure they're going to get away with it next time. You have to. She was going to, she was going to cross the tracks. And that's when I jumped out in front of her and I, and I put my arms in like a skeezix to keep her from going. And she didn't quite know what to do. And, um, you know, she got physical with me, but I just, you know, I just couldn't let her go. It wasn't the right thing to do. She was running along the tracks, and then I I figured I had to stop her before she went across the track. Wow, this is like, I'm I'm thinking of Chuck Norris and Code of Silence, this image in my head. Were you, did you, were you, were you two running on top of the train as it passed car to car? (laughs) We were running alongside, and then she was going to pass it, so I had to, I had to stop her then. All right, Margo, uh, for those who know Margo's store in Glen Ellen, you do not want to be stealing from Margo in Glen Ellen. for the funky data. You know what I'm saying? I got every dog in my neighborhood breaking down my door. I got Spuds and Kenzie, Alex from Strohs. They won't leave my dog alone with that Medina, pal. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Millennials are just so, you know, they're so full of ennui, right? They're just so listless. They don't even care about their jobs. You know, they don't keep the coming uh, robot takeover. Fine with it. Whatever. This uh, interesting piece in the New York Post about that. Some 2.5 million jobs could be at risk in New York City alone because of AI, according to one study. And they talked to some millennials about the prospect of some of these service sector jobs being eliminated and them being replaced by robots. Want to be replaced by golf carts. Just keep it up. Yeah, bad catting will do it. 41% of 25 to 34-year-olds say they've been assisted by an automation program at work in 2019. That's nearly twice as many as compared to workers that are over the age of 54. One uh, industry expert says today's younger generations are digital natives immersed in tech from childhood, making them well acquainted with how to augment their lives with technology And so they're less fearful of the robot takeover, even if it's a takeover of their job. Huh. That's kind of interesting. I mean, it's encouraging in a way. Maybe they have a little bit better and healthier perspective and innovation rather than being the proverbial candle maker cursing the invention of electricity. But I wonder then how docile they will be when uh, if and when America moves to some sort of Chinese like social credit system. This was the topic of an interesting piece by Kelly Vlahos. She's the executive editor for uh, the American Conservative. She writes about this uh, Tina Fey uh, Allstate commercial uh, and 
It uh, invoked the idea of the China social credit system, and it recalls the story out during the holidays about monitoring of students on college campuses. There's an app that colleges are using to track students' movements on campus and give them points for good attendance. It's all gathered through, like, Bluetooth technology and monitored by school officials. Will that sort of innovation and millennials being accustomed to them, not afraid of them, will that usher in a wondrous era of big brother social credit scoring. For more on this topic, we're pleased to be joined by Kelly Vlahos. Kelly, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me on. Yeah, so I'm glad you uh, you picked up on this and connected some dots for us. I, I wouldn't have connected it to an Allstate commercial, but that's a, that's a good one. That's another good <laughs> illustration of it. And you point out it's happening on a college campus, and this is what China uses, and it's not to accentuate the prospects of the individual. So, you know, it sounds all well and good. Oh, I'm going to get discounts for being a good driver. I'm going to get points on campus for attending class. But there's uh, some questions that should be asked about this sort of monitoring and scoring, shouldn't there be? Yeah, absolutely. I had written about this, about the Chinese social credit system, which in fact is rolling out nationwide now. So when I wrote about it last summer, there were still pilot programs going on across uh, the Chinese mainland. And so they were in different, they're different mediums. So some of the social credits were literally somebody going around with a pad and paper and talking to neighbors and seeing who was doing what, who was who, who was doing good deeds, who was fighting with their wives, and then assigning credit to them. And then there were more sophisticated processes in which, you know, they had apps on their phones that the government was watching and giving and adding credits to their app for good driving, good deeds, paying their bills on time. Now there's going to be a nationwide program, which is all electronic and aided by all sorts of massive, you know, databases and surveillance that goes on. So when I wrote this, I said there was a suggestion that this could roll over into the Western world at some point. And what you're seeing now, and you know, the Tina Fey commercial is just a a small piece of that, is that this will roll out through more traditional consumer lifestyle apps, where people who are already conditioned to like you said, um, having technology, um, you know, um, know, help them. I I forget the word you used, but, you know, it was basically, you know, a helper and assistant. They will be more amenable to having, um, you know, some sort of check on their behavior in order to get rewards. And that's the key is, is the reward. So these students on these campuses will be rewarded because their professors will see that they are in class and they're attending and they're and they're you know um, you know doing their bit and that they will get some sort of uh, academic rewards uh, as a result and drivers get rewards for driving well you know so I think in, in American culture at least it'll be the rewards that will entice people to go along with this program um, as it is in China but the the goals will be different. You know, the goals here will be selling things to you, conditioning you to buy things. Whereas in China, they're conditioning people to be good communists. Well, I mean, it, you know, it's one of those things where uh, initially it may be conditioning you to buy things, but, you know, the wrong people get in charge and the purpose can change. Right. Yeah. And and you have these products being developed. I mean, this is this is classic Chinese. Well, this is classic communist period, but uh, Chinese communist, perhaps specifically being uh, rolled out at the Consumer Electronics Show going on in Vegas, uh, mm. the, te- the Tech Expo, the Bellabot developed by the Chinese company Purdue Tech. It's a robotic waiter capable of delivering up to 
10 kilograms of restaurant orders to waiting customers. Its body is comprised of stacks of shelves carrying food trays, but the head and the face, they have the personality of like a crotchety feline. So think about this. You have this in your house and you've got this uh, this robot cat waiter and it's also, but it, it's, it could also be a data and monitoring device. Yeah, well, that sounds like that sounds like a Twilight Zone episode really gone horribly wrong. I, what I get nervous about, and you, you brought up the, the sort of monitoring in the home. I was reading a piece this morning about how the Chinese people have reacted to their social credit system, and uh, there was an aside in, in the piece that talked about people's dinner conversations being mentioned. And they were talking about how the future of America and how this might play out there. And I was thinking, wow, that that reminds me of the Alexa that is plugged in in my kitchen. And my husband and I have this constant battle where he's unplugging it and I plug it back in and he's unplugging it because he's convinced that they're listening in on our conversation. And I, you know, about six months ago, I would have waved that off you know, but now I'm starting to really, I mean, how many times have you sat there and said something and all of a sudden Alexa perks up out of nowhere saying, I don't understand that. And you wonder how much, how much they are listening, how much they are monitoring. They say they're not and that they just have people on the other end that are, that are like quality control or something. Yeah. But I'm starting, you know, I don't think it's too tinfoily to start. To, to, to maybe suspect that this thing is more two-way than we think. I, I'm going to think globally, but act locally. I'm going to start an uprising against the vitality bucks at Salem here. <laughs> I mean, it's, 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 leave me alone on my when my jazzercise class, for goodness sakes. <laughs> but, you know, the, the scary thing is, in the piece that I was, I was reading was, was that the Chinese people, you know, are – on the most part, and it's hard to tell because it's hard to pull there, obviously, you know, they get punished for speaking the truth. Um, but on the most part, they welcome the social credit system because they feel that overall it is designed to sort of um, build in moral and behavioral um, quality among sure. the people. So, Oh, yeah. Um, Who knows more they, about morality they, and quality behavior than uh, the <laughs> Chinese Politburo? Well, I mean, this is a this is a country that embraced the one child policy for 35 years recently, just discontinued and the brutality of that policy. So, I mean, in terms of, you know, and I'm not trying to, to impugn the Chinese people as a whole, but but that country is uh, not anything we want to model anything we're doing after. Oh, I agree. I'm just saying that they're convinced that this is necessary. Because yeah. They- Kelly Vlahos, she is the executive editor for the American Conservative. If you want to check out her column, which I'll tweet out about this social credit uh, system in America, the prospect of it. Kelly, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. I wanted to pick up our discussion of Iranian policy with criticism that was offered by Tucker Carlson on his show, suggesting that uh, those who are generally skeptical of the deep state because of arguably the fifth column action that uh, parts of the deep state have been engaged in since Trump was elected president, are not so skeptical now when it comes to pronouncements about the imminent threat that was posed by 
Iranian terrorist general Soleimani, Tucker Carlson arguing thusly. The risk of terror is increased by appeasement. It's a good line, and it may be true. Probably is true. Of course, the risk of terror is also increased by bombing other people's countries. That is also indisputably true. It's hard to remember now, but as recently as last week, most people didn't consider Iran an imminent threat. Iranian saboteurs were not committing acts of terror in our cities. Oh, but our leaders tell us they were about to any second. That's why we struck first. What's so striking is how many people appear to accept this uncritically. Just the other day, you remember, our intel agencies were considered politically tainted and suspect. Certainly on this show they are, were, and will be for quite some time. Keep in mind, these are the people who invented excuses to spy on the Trump campaign purely because they didn't like Donald Trump's foreign policy views. And they're the ones who pretended he was a Russian agent in order to keep him from governing. Remember that? Russiagate? Our friends in the intel community did that. And by the way, these are the same people who lied about Iraq's weapons of mass destruction way back in 2002. And by doing that, got us into an utterly pointless war that dramatically weakened our country. The people pushing conflict with Iran are the same people who did that. It seems like about 20 minutes ago we were denouncing these very people as the deep state and pledging never to trust them again without verification. But now, for some reason, we do seem to trust them implicitly and completely. In fact, we believe whatever they tell us, no matter how outlandish. Iran did 9-11, they're telling us. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Rich Lowry, editor of National Review, Fox News contributor, author of the new book, The Case for Nationalism, How It Made Us Powerful, United, and Free. Rich, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. And so uh, what of Tucker Carlson's uh, criticism that uh, those who support the president are being too uncritical about the arguments coming from uh, the Foreign Service personnel, the National Security personnel of this administration as it pertains to the rationalization for the strike? I think that's totally misguided. One, a little slippery there, he seems to suggest that when the administration says there is an imminent threat, that they're saying there's an imminent threat to U.S. cities. That's not what they were saying. They're saying that there's an imminent threat to U.S. forces and diplomats in the region. And, yeah, maybe there's an argument about how imminent it is, but there's no doubt that Soleimani was planning attacks on Americans. This was his job. This is his mission. This is what consumes him. This, this is what he has to do uh, to serve the regime the way he was serving it. So, and this also isn't, you know, James Comey isn't the Secretary of State. Yes. Mike Pompeo is, you know, who's as loyal uh, to Trump as, as they come. James Comey isn't the National Security uh, Advisor. James Comey isn't the, the Secretary of Defense. So these are all Trump loyalists who looked at the, uh, looked at the threat, looked at the intelligence, and uh, presented this option to the president, and he took it. And it's, it's definitely good. That Soleimani is gone. He has massive amounts of American blood on his hands. Uh, I think the case, reasonable case you can make about it is it's too risky, and we don't know what the downsides are. That's a reasonable case to make about it, that this is some sort of deep state conspiracy that somehow ensnared the president and fooled him into killing a, uh, a dastardly and cunning enemy of the United States just strikes me as crazy. Well, also, too, um, it's a little bit disingenuous to suggest that to, to, to make the argument, basically, that because uh, some people in the military industrial complex, if you will, have lied before or have just been wrong before, uh, honestly wrong before, that means that they're always lying or wrong. 
I mean, you have to judge things on a bit of a case-by-case basis based on the logic and evidence, don't you? Yeah, no, of course. And we didn't lie about uh, Iraqi WMD. Right. We got it wrong. Right. It was a grievous mistake. Uh, it's obviously you know, undermined the credibility of American uh, intelligence, understandably so. But that doesn't mean we're wrong about uh, everything. And Reuters has done uh, really impressive reporting about how uh, Soleimani was uh, meeting uh, in, in Iraq to mobilize uh, forces against us. And again, this, this is not some fantasy about something that will happen. It has been happening uh, for, for years and even for decades. Uh, I want to uh, come back with you and get your reaction to an argument that Rand Paul made. Again, just taking the constructive criticism, if you will, from a non-interventionist like Rand Paul. Get your perspective on that. We know what uh, the Warrens and the Bernie Sanders of the world are going to say, so that's a lot less interesting. Rich Lowry, editor of National Review, will be right back with This is the Dan Proft Show. We're back with Rich Lowry, editor of National Review here on the Dan Prof Show. Rich is Fox News contributor, author of the new book, The Case for Nationalism, How It Made Us Powerful, United and Free. Talking about the uh, strike uh, taking out the General Soleimani, uh, terrorist general in Iran. The uh, ensuing chaos that uh, has occurred uh, in Iran. And and also, and importantly, what the next steps are. Or Rand Paul, uh, that's where he went when he was on CNN with uh, Wolf Blitzer, expressing concern. It wasn't uh, criticism. It wasn't hair on fire. But uh, as a non-interventionist, here's Rand Paul's perspective. The other unintended consequence here is you saw the chanting in the streets of Tehran. This has emboldened the hardliners. Iran is like any other country. There's a mixture of opinion. There are hardliners that never want to talk to Uh, America at all, death to America. But there are moderates and younger people who do like the West and who would talk to us. I think what this does is it it, it lessens the voices of anybody that wants moderation or diplomacy. And even the Iranians will not be able to approach us on diplomacy until there's revenge, until there's adequate revenge to satiate the people who want some kind of revenge. And this is sad. I mean, the death of Soleimani, I think, is the death of diplomacy with Iran. I don't see an off-ramp. I don't see a way out of this. Uh, Rich, do you agree death of diplomacy here? No. I, I mean, look, clearly it's galvanized opinion against us in Iran and in Iraq, at least for the the time uh, being. But let's not have any illusions. The hardliners are firmly in control of the Iranian uh, regime. So the idea that uh, moderates were going to fundamentally uh, affect the direction of uh, Iranian uh, diplomacy or actions in the Middle East is just fantasy. And Iran had been the one that had been steadily escalating up to um, having its proxies you know, carry out this rocket attack on our base that killed a contractor, injured other Americans, and then stormed our embassy. You know, so then the idea that we're, it's, that we're the ones that, that are uh, responsible in some sense for what's happening here is uh, I, I totally uh, reject. And the idea is to establish a deterrence against harming uh, Americans. And I, I 
do think, you know, we'll have to see how it plays out. I, I do think that's likely to be a result here. I think Iran now has to think twice about killing Americans. And it seems to me that any American should welcome that, whether you're a non-interventionist, a, a populist nationalist, or a, a conservative. Right. This, this I mean, is a welcome effect of what we've done. Yeah, and this is the point that General Petraeus made in part over the weekend on Face the Nation, saying oh, this is Trump reestablishing the deterrent effect that had been absent with respect to Iran. And Petraeus again saying that this uh, uh, this taking out of some, uh, Soleimani, Soleimani being taken out, more important than al-Baghdadi, more important than bin Laden. And regardless of whether or not you agree with who should be ranked one, two, and three in that troika, the bottom line is if you're taking out somebody who is being spoken in the same breath as those other two terrorist architects, then that's a happy day for America and freedom-loving people the world over. Yeah, and again, you know, it's, it's legitimate to worry about the downside effects, but everyone should be glad that this guy is gone. And you have some people saying, you know, Elizabeth Warren and others, well, he's a government official. Well, that he was a government official, it does not speak well of him. It speaks really poorly of the Iranian regime, yeah. that it has a terrorist <laughs> in, as a high-ranking official because it's a terrorist regime. So there, there are two ways you can get at the legitimacy of this. One is that he himself was a designated terrorist running an organization that we designated as a terrorist organization, which makes it legitimate to go after him. The other is that he was waging war on the armed forces of the United States, which makes it legitimate to to go after him. So uh, it, it's just been, to me, just shameful uh, the way the, the left in particular has as now kind of established a rule. He can't say anything negative about Soleimani. You know, Elizabeth Warren got blowback when her initial statement called him a murderer, and that's why she won't she won't say it anymore and, and says he is this high-ranking uh, government official. So it, it's just it's it's a sign of the left's twisted priorities and also just the way uh, so many people, their hatred for Donald Trump totally warps their perspective on everything. Yeah, and the the uh, and one of the arguments there's being made, and you know, there you know them, but one of them is. Well, this is reckless. This was not well thought out. This is a one-off. This is wag the dog. Walter Russell Mead had a good piece in the journal about this, referencing an interview he did with Secretary of State Pompeo, where he basically said, look, um, no, this is a continuation of the approach that uh, President Trump is taking in consultation, mainly with Pompeo. They believe they have Iran in a box and that the continuing sanctions will continue to squeeze them. And it's going to ultimately force Iran to the table. So in point of fact, it may sound counterintuitive, but they believe that uh, taking out Soleimani was a step in the direction of diplomacy, not a step away from it. Right. So if you make clear to them that there's no way they're getting out of the box, the idea is that that will leave them no option but to come back and to cut a better deal. And that's not a crazy scenario. I'm not saying it necessarily it's going to happen. You know, it's, it's possible things spiral the other way. But if you want to get more concessions from Iran, this some version of what they're doing is the only way to do it. And uh, by the way, in terms of those critics from the left, I again, I mean, I, I know hypocrisy is their calling card, but you only have to walk back down memory lane a few blocks to find headlines about Obama ordering 2,800 rocket strikes in Syria and Iraq without congressional approval and Mark Halperin and John Holloman writing a book in which uh, one aide is quoted as, as uh, saying the president said in a meeting about drone strikes that he had become really good at killing people. The sorts of things that are existential threats to Western civilization 
in the Trump administration, but weren't even worthy of comment in the Obama administration. Yeah, exactly. And, and look, you know, there are some of my colleagues think this, and uh, I, I think it's reasonable enough to argue that the authorizations here are kind of long in the tooth. They need to be freshened up. The mm-hmm. idea that we authorized the military force in Iraq and now we're you know, killing it. Uh, Soleimani, you know, how, how does that how does that exactly how does that pass? work. So, you know, I'd be open to freshening up these authorizations, but there's no doubt that this this was legal. And you're you're right, it's exactly the same action that uh, Barack Obama took repeatedly uh, with with very few uh, objections from the left, some precincts of the left, but almost none from mainstream Democrats. If only Iraq would have been one of the administration's greatest accomplishments, as Joe Biden uh, suggested it would be in 2010. <laughs> it didn't quite work out that way. Rich Lowry, editor of National Review, Fox News contributor of the book. Pick up his new book, The Case for Nationalism, How It Made Us Powerful, United and Free. Rich, thanks for joining us on The Dan Prof Show. Hey, thanks so much. The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. And you know, it's difficult enough to find love in this crazy upside down world. Do we really need the strain of TSA pre on our relationships? Yeah, TSA pre check. It's creating a stratification in America. It's dividing neighbor against neighbor, father against son, partner against partner. At least that's what I understand from Christina Caterucci over at uh, the left-wing rag Slate magazine. She, uh, you know, you may recognize her work uh, from some hits as rallying to the defense of former California Congresswoman Katie Hill after she had to resign uh, amid, uh, you know, Pressing problems in her personal life. We'll just leave it there. You can Google it if you don't recall. Uh, Christina Caterucci now tackling TSA pre the relationship killer. If you and your romantic partner have different statuses, the airport can be much more than a series of trivial degradations one must endure at the start of a vacation. Uh, Trivial degradations and vacation don't really belong in the same sentence. Degradation and vacation, it's, she's so put upon. For some mixed pre-check status couples, yeah, that's a thing apparently, it's become a crucible, a test of loyalty, a spotlight on income or lifestyle differences, or a reminder that in a relationship, one party's personal choices almost always affect the other. Should a pre-check member take her rightful place among the elite in the shorter security line, even if it means leaving her spouse behind? That is a pressing question. By the way, um, I, I, if I'm recalling correctly, I think TSA PreCheck is like 85 bucks, and global entry is like 100 bucks for a five-year membership. So, um, you know, I mean, I'm not saying that's not a considerable sum of money for some, but is it uh, really <laughs> the difference between the haves and have-nots in American society? Uh, Katarucci is confused. She's not sure. There's no clear right or wrong answer to the question. 
On the one hand, it makes no sense for the PreCheck partner to suffer through a more invasive security screening just to spend a few more minutes of quality time with her spouse in a longer line. Yes, Christina's spouses are her. On the other hand, what is the spouse but a designated travel companion on this journey we call life? That is profound. Profound. Real or imagined, pre-check status does create a social division. It's easy to laugh at the absurdity of the stratification of the airport, and we are doing so. The tiers name for precious metals and endless levels of boarding party, but those divisions can nudge couples into real-life disputes. Well, boy, oh boy. Uh, the uh, downtown problems of leftist staff writers at Slate.com, isn't it? Uh, if your relationship uh, can't handle different security line statuses, or if the, between the two of you, you can't figure out how to get the same status, then I think there are deeper problems with you as a suitable partner for just about anybody. This is the Dan Process. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Will Senate Republicans ever get those articles of impeachment? That's uh, something uh, Josh Hawley, who's a senator, Republican senator from Missouri, is anxious to obtain. And he wants to put Nancy Pelosi on a 25-day clock to move this thing along, as he explained to Fox and Friends yesterday. You know, Nancy Pelosi is attempting to obstruct a Senate trial. That's all there is to it. The Constitution says that the Senate is the one that will have the trial. It says the trial will follow the impeachment. Now she's trying to prevent a Senate trial. She's trying to obstruct it. She's trying to upend the Constitution. So here's what I think needs to happen. We need to change the Senate rules to allow the Senate to dismiss this case if she refuses to send the articles over. The Senate has to act. We've got to say, send us these articles or we're moving on without you. Yes, uh, Nancy Pelosi and House Democrats have the first fierce urgency of getting around to it when there is some discernible political benefit to be had. And there doesn't seem to be any at present, with the possible exception of making a few squishy Republican senators a bit more nervous than they normally are. For more on this topic, we're pleased to be joined by George Perry, former federal and state prosecutor, regular contributor to the Philadelphia Inquirer and blogs at knowledgeisgood.net. George, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Glad to be here. What do you think about uh, Josh Hawley's uh, you know, sort of comparison to uh, Article Three courts? Uh, what we need here is a, a motion to dismiss if they're not going to present the articles, put her on a clock, and uh, let's move this along. Well, that would certainly be the result in an Article Three court if you would just move to dismiss for failure to prosecute. Uh, but, of course, we're dealing with a wholly political process here, and uh, whether the Senate majority would have enough nerve to actually uh, pass the or change the rules as proposed by uh, Senator Hawley remains to be seen. As you pointed out in the intro, we, you've got some squishy uh, rhinos uh, like Lisa Murkowski and Susan Collins who probably uh, look. What do I know? But my sense is they would they would not go along with that. Uh, they would want to appear to provide a full-blown trial in the Senate. Whether or not that would ever happen, of course, is up to Nancy Pelosi. Uh, She may or may not 
and those articles of impeachment over. Uh, like the whole thing has just been a political show from start to finish. It isn't a real impeachment. It's not a serious uh, effort to uh, remove the president from office. It's just designed to dirty him up as much as possible uh, for purposes of the upcoming election. Well, you're a man after my own heart because you've uh, used both a World War II metaphor as well as a Mel Brooks metaphor to describe Nancy Pelosi <laughs> in this process. So, you know, Bastone or Cleavon Little, you start wherever you want. Well, in terms of the Bastone reference, I, I did an article for the American Spectator, and it's also on my blog. During the Battle of the Bulge, when the Germans came through the Ardennes Forest in 1944 and caught the Americans and the Allies by surprise, there was a conference that Dwight Eisenhower, the Supreme Allied Commander, called of all his generals, and they were kind of worried, you know, what are we going to do about this? And that was when General Patton said, look, this is an opportunity. He said, the crowd stuck his head in a meat grinder, and this time I've got the handle. And so I used that in my article, that uh, this time with this impeachment, the Democrats have stuck their heads in a meat grinder, and the president and his allies should just start cranking that handle. I think they have presented the president and his team uh, with a golden opportunity to just destroy them electorally, because the whole purpose behind the impeachment, what they're claiming is that he had tried to recruit the uh, Ukrainian authorities to investigate Joe Biden and his wastrel son, uh, Hunter Biden, to see if there was any corruption there. And of course, there there had to have been. Uh, when Hunter Biden was placed on the board of this uh, corrupt uh, gas company, Burisma Holdings, and paid between $50,000 and $83,000 a month, at the same time that Joe Biden, who was our point man in Ukraine, was over there handing out billions of dollars in foreign aid and at one point withheld the foreign aid or threatened to withhold the foreign aid if the prosecutor who was investigating Burisma Holdings wasn't wasn't fired. And I said, look, this is a golden opportunity to get into all of that. That would be the heart of the president's defense. And, you know, if the Democrats really want to die in that ditch, that's fine. As for the Mel Brooks, the, the Mel Brooks reference, when Nancy Pelosi uh, held up the uh, articles of impeachment, uh, she started making demands that, well, you know, the Senate's going to have to change uh, the way it's going to handle these charges, the, the trial procedures, before I'll release the holdings. And I, and I couldn't help but think of uh, Blazing Saddles, that scene in Blazing Saddles sure, where sure. Cleavon Little— yeah. Yeah, yeah, he's named the sheriff. He's named the first black sheriff in the history of this town full of white racists. And so when they surround him with drawn guns pointed at his head, he pulls out his gun and sticks it to his head and says, nobody moves or, or the you-know-what gets it. So I just thought, yeah, that's exactly Nancy Pelosi's strategy. She's, go ahead, break our hearts, Nancy. Don't send the uh, don't send those articles of impeachment over to the Senate uh, I'm sure they're really worried about that. Well, so. it, well, if I could respond to the uh, Blazing Saddles reference, you've got to remember <laughs> these are just simple Democrats. They're people of the land, <laughs> the common clay of the New West, you know, morons. Yeah. Uh, thank yeah. you. That's my best. Gene Wilder is the Waco kid. There you go. Uh, a former, so as one prosecutor to another, not me, but a former uh Prosecutor Trey Gowdy, who was on Fox mm -hmm. the other day, and he basically said, look, this isn't about removing 
Trump from office. They know they can't do that. This is about uh, trying to middle some Republican senators in swing states in 2020 and maybe, I don't know, maybe make impeachment a way to get back the Senate, which seems to me almost as much of a lark as trying to remove the president from office. But but he said, look, uh, to your point before about you don't know what Bolton's going to say, these witnesses that Schumer wants and that Senate Democrats want, you should get the articles of impeachment, have each side present their case and move for a vote. Vote your shares already because it is a political process and you don't mm-hmm. want to go into any trial not knowing what may come out of the mouths of any witness. You know, the, the Republicans make a good argument, of course, that the time for gathering evidence was in the House, uh, you know, the investigative phase. And it's a little late to be going over to the Senate side and saying, well, you know, Senate, we want you to now uh, – finish up our job for us by calling even more witnesses. And I get that procedurally. Certainly, if if this was a a criminal case in federal court, that would be totally improper. But look, this is a completely political process. These guys can do whatever they want. And, you know, if they want to call witnesses before the Senate, fine. The rules allow for that. Um, But going back to, say, the Bill Clinton impeachment, Uh, I was fortunate enough to go to that trial in the Senate. There you had real crimes that had been brought forth as the basis for impeachment, including perjury by the president, the chief law enforcement officer of the country. And there were no witnesses called in that case. Uh, It was all arguments based on the record that came out of the House investigation. And at the end of it, even though the the evidence that had been gathered by the House was crystal clear that Clinton had committed crimes in office. The Democrats in the Senate had no problem whatsoever voting to acquit. It just underlined to me that the fact that this isn't really a legal proceeding. This should not be even compared to what goes on in criminal court. It's wholly political. And it all comes down to whose ox is being gored, and that's how this thing's going to get decided. And you got 51 Republican senators. The Democrats may be able to peel off a few of those, a few of the squishes. But the bottom line is it takes a two-thirds vote to remove the president. So everybody knows where this is going, just as I might add during the, the Clinton impeachment trial in the Senate, despite the brilliance of the House managers who were presenting their case. And these, these guys were brilliant, including Asa Hutchinson from Arkansas, who is maybe the best lawyer in the room. Um, everybody knew where this was going. I mean, I remember looking down into the well of the Senate at Ted Kennedy and and uh, uh, Chris, uh, Chris uh, the guy from Connecticut. Chris Dodd. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, yeah. yeah the, Making their uh, dinner plans. Uh, they, were, they were sitting there passing notes back and forth and joking, and uh, some of these guys were walking around, uh, going from one desk to another, you know, joking and, yeah. and doing whatever, while the House managers were presenting this overwhelmingly compelling case against the president. So, yeah, uh, but this, I, I get the, the... a kick out of law professors saying, yeah, well, in a criminal court, this wouldn't happen. Well, yeah, in a criminal court, you can't walk around the courtroom. <laughs> These are senators. They can do whatever they want. Yeah, but this time, George, you understand Democrats are prayerful and heartbroken 
and sober. <laughs> yeah, okay. George Perry, yeah, the yeah, former <laughs> former federal and state prosecutor George Perry, regular contributor to the Philadelphia Inquirer and blogs at knowledgeisgood.net. George, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Okay, thank you. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. And uh, what happened to Howard Stern? What happened to Howard Stern? It's the subject of an interesting perspective uh, at uh, cityjournal.org by Bruce Bauer. Uh, Stern has a third book coming out called Howard Stern Comes Again. And what uh, Bauer does in his piece is sort of track Howard Stern's beginning as uh, the shock jock that became the you know, popular morning guy in New York City and then, of course, syndicated and then over to Sirius and made a bunch of money and one of the dominant voices in radio over the last 30 years and uh, then, of course, bridged that into TV, including being on those talent shows as a judge and all the different things. Uh, and I'm not going to go from start to finish. You can go see Private Parts or read his previous books if you want to know the, the start. It's the transformation that we're more interested in. And isn't it another story, classic story, cautionary tale of the outside guy becoming the inside guy? Uh, Bauer and also some of the Howard Stern's former cast members put his transformation at about the year 2016. There was a certain election going on at the time, presidential election. And you'll remember that uh, over the years, uh, Trump, when he was just a real estate magnate and Playboy of sorts in New York, uh, had uh, appeared on Stern's show a bunch of times, bonded over their love of beautiful women and their commonsensical worldviews. At least that's the way they described it to each other during Trump's appearances, going in both directions. But then, as Bauer writes, came the 2016 election. Stern had bonded with Trump for years, but had always considered himself a Clinton guy, though both Clintons had turned down multiple interview requests. Bill even once snubbed Stern at a party. Most of Stern's FCC fines were levied during Clinton's presidency, but in 2016, Stern supported Hillary. His explanations made no sense. He sounded like just another Manhattan liberal. In response to Stern's metamorphosis, many longtime listeners peeled off, eventually bored by what his show had turned into. I became one of them. A whole sub-sub-genre of online entertainment has come into being. The interview with or conversation between former denizens of Stern World discussing the question, what happened to Howard? And Bauer uh, references some of them. Uh, Artie Lang, he's not the man I knew. That was Artie Lang uh, to uh, Opie Hughes, another radio talker, in 2016. In 2017, Lang described the Stern Show as having done a 180. Uh, And he suggested that his new wife and her desire to hobnob with A-listers in Manhattan may have had something to do with it. The... um, uh, the apotheosis, according to Bauer, of Stern's metamorphosis, to borrow a Kafkaism, uh, was uh, this interview he did with Hillary Clinton on December 4th. Couldn't get her in 2016 when she was running, but got her on December 4th last month. And, uh, well, listen to some excerpts for yourself to get a sense of maybe what Bauer is getting at. 
here's uh, Hillary talking about uh, Bernie Sanders and, you know, uh, mainline socialism is okay. Uh, crazy socialism, not so good. It's like uh, the distinction between Lenin and Trotsky. Listen to her talk. Bernie Sanders, and this was a perception I had. Mm-hmm. You would say a policy when you right. were running against right. him for the nomination. Right, right. And the next day you go, yeah, well, free college for everyone. Yeah. It's almost yeah. like when you run for a, a fifth grade class. Yeah, right. That's I'll give right. you free yeah. everything. Chocolate milk for everyone. And yeah. more recess. <laughs> yeah. More pizza. Words, and then it makes it and look then, like you're a stick in the mud. I know. And then when you say, well, wait a minute, where, where's no the sense. money going to come from? Then you're, what a minute, are you against free college? <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> oh, yeah. Hillary's the adult in the room. Is that what we've seen over the past uh, 30 years? Uh, I'm sorry. We're criticizing Bernie Sanders for his, his big government gambits. This is the uh, first person who tried to do the backdoor takeover of the nation's healthcare industry uh, a good uh, almost two decades before Obama and company, including Hillary, did it, right? And then, of course, it gets personal, kitschy, uh, campy. Uh, Hillary talking about her time at Yale and. Of course, the the grand love affair between her and Bill meeting at that Yale library. But before that, Yale Law Library. Before that, uh, Hillary Clinton talking about her boyfriend before Bill. Uh, please uh, prepare your barf bags. I you liked know. him. I I just liked him. He was a good guy. Oh, he must have been so he upset. A, he was, and he was so handsome. He was really, handsome. really, really handsome. Yeah, he looked like a Greek god. He was really handsome. No kidding. Mm-hmm. Greek God. Yeah, he's very attractive. <laughs> I don't know. I'd listen to you. <laughs> uh, it's all giggles all around. And then, of course, they go risque and uh, address the elephant in the room. Well, Hillary does. Hillary prompts it, not the shock jock. Well, contrary to what you may hear, I actually like men. Oh, <laughs> oh right. Yeah. <laughs> That's the well, other that's thing. The other thing. That's the other thing. We're right? like friends. Yeah. And, Raise your right hand. Yeah. You've never had a lesbian affair. <laughs> never, 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 never even been tempted. Thank Unbelievable. You very much. Yeah. And after doing her shilling vis-a-vis Bernie, then Stern did her shilling vis-a-vis the Republican Party, lamenting what has become of the Republican Party. You know, reasonable Republicans that used to agree with us on stuff like Lindsey Graham. You know, John McCain tragically dies too soon after standing up for health care, which was astounding and so in character for him. And now, you know, I don't know what's happened to Lindsey Graham. I, I, I'll i be honest with you. I haven't talked to him in a long time. He wrote, you know how Time magazine has like the top 100 people and all that. One year, like, I don't know, back in a couple of years ago when I was uh, in it, he wrote the tribute to me. My and God. then now it's like he, he it's like he had a, a brain snatch, you know. Hmm. Do you know what that's like, Howard? The irony of her describing um, a evolution or devolution, depending on your perspective, somebody who is not who they used to be, not taking the positions they used to take, perhaps the context changes. So their disposition changes. That's what Bruce Bauer writes about that interview. Stern's transformation. December 4th, when he welcomed Hillary Clinton to the studio for more than two hours, even for a longtime fan who'd watched Stern's persona shift over the years, I found the man who interviewed Hillary barely recognizable. Finally, he was the shock jock he'd always been accused of being because his relentless flattery of the former first lady was truly shocking. It was as if he were determined to prove that he could fawn over Hillary more fervently than her most ardent supporter. And in the media, that's a tall order. 
the entire interview was a case of kowtowing on an epic scale. And I think you heard some examples of what Bauer is referencing. Howard Stern, who rose to fame in considerable part by zapping fraudulent politicians and now given one of the most sycophantic interviews of all time to a woman regarded by many as the most duplicitous Paul of our era. It was a terrible come down for a guy who'd earned a reputation for fearless honesty, but he got what he wanted. Now that he'd done the love scene with Hillary, there were there were was was there any door in Manhattan or Malibu, the Hamptons or Hollywood that could remain closed to him? Now, once the king of outsiders, the voice of the deplorables, if you will, Howard Stern has become the ultimate insider whom the likes of Cher, Madonna, Ellen, Rosie, you name it, would not only be eager to socialize, but would also look up to as a top ranking member of their cloistered club. So, yeah, what happened to the Republican Party? Uh, What happened to Lindsey Graham? What happened to Howard Stern? A case, classic case, really of the outside guy becoming the inside guy because the inside guy is who he wants to be. This is the Dan Prof Show. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Prof, and this is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. When it comes to bad actors in Hollywood or tangentially connected to Hollywood, most of the oxygen right now is being sucked up by the Harvey Weinstein trial in New York and the additional charges, sex crimes he's been charged with in L.A. And then obviously the conspiracy theories that surround Jeffrey Epstein's death and uh, the desire still for a reckoning to come for those who were in Epstein's inner circle. There's something else uh, afoot in Hollywood. It has been for a while. And it's funny, uh, not ha-ha funny. Ricky Gervais sort of touched on it in the monologue where he torched Hollywood uh, during the Golden Globes on Sunday night. Did you catch how many pedophile jokes he made? Talking about, uh, you know, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio being chastised by Prince Andrew for dating young women. Talking about Jeffrey Epstein being one of Hollywood's friends. Didn't mention so much about Harvey Weinstein, but uh, pedophilia was big in movies in Hollywood this year. So it's a recurring uh, theme, in part, in Gervais's remarks. And it brings me to this story. I mean, and, and by the way, of course, the explosion, the explosive documentary this year, Neverland, about Michael Jackson. Uh, we're in season two of Surviving R. Kelly. And uh, the questions that abound. How could these people have gotten away with what they got away with for so long? So many enablers, so many people who look the other way. Is it uh, are these one offs or is this like a closed power system that's self-reinforcing and people have each other's backs because they're all barbarians of a similar sort? Uh, I came across this uh, blog and blogger. Her name is Tiffany Fitzhenry. She was uh, a screenwriter in Hollywood who was uh, on her way up. In fact, uh, she references that uh, some that she was working with in Hollywood, including some pretty high-powered producers, filmmakers, uh, were saying that she was going to be the next uh, Shonda Rhimes, you know, Shonda Rhimes, who the creator of Grey's Anatomy and Scandal. Um, 
she uh, worked for uh, Arnold Copelson, who uh, uh, was responsible for The Fugitive, Devil's Advocate, U.S. Marshals. She also uh, met with a uh, powerful producer named Bob Title, uh, who's done films like Men of Honor, Soul Food Barbershop. He loved my writing. She writes uh, her biography to set up her biography before I tell the story that she has told about Bob Title. This is her Me Too moment. He loved my writing, wanted to commission me to write Working Girls and or 9 to 5 for an urban audience. Listen to this. Though he was very clear I'd have to dumb it down, saying, and I quote, I have to, quote, write less intelligently for black audiences, unquote. Fitzhenry, that made me want to vomit, and it was yet another lesson in my education of how this beast, Hollywood, works and all the dark things it's used to do. (laughs) And then they virtue signal in public. Uh, that night, this meeting, Bob spent Bob Title spent thirty minutes in my lobby in the lobby of my, my hotel, pressuring and trying to intimidate me into letting him come to my room so that he could masturbate while I watched. I felt scared for my safety. Was looking around trying to determine what strong, trustworthy-looking man I was going to sprint to if it came to it. Bob made it clear this was all part of it, something I was going to have to do. I told him no, knowing it would negatively affect my career. And so as she got deeper and deeper into Hollywood, even though she was getting attention because of her writing skills, uh, she started to see things that were highly troubling. And then in 2017, she writes, after the Weinstein story broke, I began to understand what God was calling me to do and why he put me on this planet. My whole life suddenly made sense. I had to do everything I could to to save storytelling from the dark forces who'd hijacked it and return it to the artists and their audience where it belongs. And so this is what she has set about to do uh, because as she says, uh, storytelling is what shapes society more than anything else. She writes the concept of entertainment is possibly the biggest lie ever told. Pop culture has been an elaborate and well-laid plan by diabolical people who want to control you and rule the world. People who want to have their agenda over our planet instead of God's using stories in order to accomplish their goal. You don't need to believe in any global conspiracy theory. You just need to see how people act and what the accountability system is. How long did Harvey Weinstein go unchecked? How long R. Kelly? How long Bill Cosby? How long Jeffrey Epstein? And uh, there's another story that Tiffany Fitzhenry lays out per a civil complaint that was filed in September of last year about Tammy Garcia and her son, Ricky, that uh, sounds very much like one of the families that were involved with Michael Jackson back in the day. And we'll pick up that story after the break. This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Just talking about this uh, Hollywood screenwriter named Tiffany Fitzhenry, who is uh, using her talents and uh, her inside knowledge, having been uh, in uh, in the bubble in Hollywood as a screenwriter, to expose dark forces in Hollywood, really pedophiles. 
And and again, I mentioned uh, in the last segment a lot of the high-profile cases. Don't forget about high-profile cases from not too long ago. I mean, it was only two years ago that former child actor star Corey Feldman outed the individual who had sexually abused him as a child in Hollywood, an actor named John Grissom, who ultimately actually, John Grissom, not John Grisham, make sure that's clear, uh, that the Grissom ultimately went to jail for sex crimes in the first part of the century. And uh, here's what Corey Feldman said. Again, this is two years ago. It's not that long ago. Here's what Corey Feldman said about Hollywood. I can tell you that the number one problem in Hollywood was and is and always will be pedophilia. That's the biggest problem for children in this industry. The casting couch even applies to children. Oh, yeah. Not in the same way. It's all done under the radar. Nobody talks about pedophilia. It's the big secret. And it's widespread? Oh, yeah. I was surrounded by them when I was 14 years old. Surrounded. There was a circle of older men that surrounded themselves around this group of kids. And they all had either their own power or connections to great power in the entertainment industry. And uh, just re, as I went back to read Corey Feldman's story again. It reminded me of an interview that Terry Gross over at NPR, Fresh Air, did uh, years ago when she had Lawrence Fishburne on the show, great actor. He was 14 years old when he was cast for Apocalypse Now. Did you hear Corey Feldman? When I was 14 years old, I was surrounded by them. 14 years old when Lawrence Fishburne Fishburne was uh, cast for uh, Apocalypse Now. And Gross asked him, your father insisted on being on the set. Fishburne said yes. And I read that he literally carried a baseball bat around. Fishburne, yes, he did. Did he beat you with it? What? Said Fishburne. No. The baseball bat was to beat anyone who got near me. There were a lot of drugs and goings-on on that set that my dad didn't like. Hmm? Uh, this is a place, Hollywood, where being a helicopter parent or a bat-wielding parent isn't a bad thing. And so the case of Tammy Garcia and her son, Ricky. Uh, this is Tiffany Fitzhenry after spending months with Tammy Garcia after she filed a civil suit back in September uh, to memorialize her story in uh, a narrative form rather than a legal one. She writes of this, does Fitzhenry. It's a cautionary tale teeming with villains and a few truly brave heroes culminating in a mother and son's determination to fully expose and once and for all end the scourge of Hollywood, systemic institutionalized pedophilia. Uh, they uh, came to Hollywood in August 2011 uh, after Ricky was dis- uh, discovered, you know, at one of these uh, talent searches in, uh, in Dallas, I believe. He was uh, 12 years old at the time, the kid. Not long after arriving in L.A., Ricky teamed up with... Uh, a couple other young men to form a boy band shortly thereafter during an overnight songwriting trip, which, which strictly no parents allowed Ricky and his bandmates were taken to Catalina Island by Joby Hart, who was the agent that they had signed with and several songwriters, all adults. Once there, the young teens were plied with alcohol, including scotch, tequila, vodka, champagne purchased and served by this agent and the other adults. The kids drank to excess to the point of being sick 
uh, after which, allegedly, the agent undressed and bathed Ricky Garcia. Ricky blacked out. He woke up the next morning naked in bed with the agent having no memory of what happened. This began a pattern that would go on multiple times per week for four years, steadily progressing to include all forms of sexual abuse, including rape, as well as abuse by others in the entertainment power circle of this agent named Joby Hart. And it happened when he, Ricky, started getting more work and moved over to the Disney Channel. The the band, uh, that boy band, uh, under Disney and Hollywood Records development, they released several singles and albums, went on tours. April of 2015, after attending the Radio Disney Music Awards, Disney, you know, that produces Frozen and all these family-friendly movies. After that music awards party, the, or after the music awards show, there was an after party at the home of a manager who represents uh, big acts like uh, Shailene Woodley, Big Little Lies, the band. Uh, according to the documents filed in court last, last fall, an incident occurred involving Tammy Garcia's middle son, who'd been invited to attend the awards with his brother, Ricky. The... Uh, the big shot manager who hosted the party aggressively pursued the young man to speak despite repeated attempts to inform him by the kid that he was straight, that he didn't want any, you know, he didn't want to be touched in any way, shape or form. Ricky's brother ended up having to jump the fence and flee on foot to escape this guy, Niles Larson's unrelenting sexual advances. And it goes on and on and on Disney parties other stars, parties at the home of megastars like Chris Pratt. They ultimately documented uh, 60 specific instances that essentially had been uh, nearly weekly abuse by multiple people with whom the mom finally understood were well-insulated pedophiles. Fitzhenry writes, she also, the mom, began to understand how she, along with her son, had been groomed and manipulated, not just by Joby Hart, her son's agent, but by the entire Hollywood machine. Uh, there has been no reckoning for the agent in question, legally or professionally, and really no public pub, pub, uh, publicizing of this until they filed this suit, and now it's getting a little bit of amplification with uh, Tiffany Fitzhenry picking up the story and trying to distribute it online so that other parents know. And so perhaps more, there uh, is a reckoning demanded for these individuals before they go on for another couple of decades, the way Harvey Weinstein and R. Kelly and so many others were allowed to go on. This is The Dan Prof Show. Frightened of this thing that I've become. This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Let's talk about parallels. Communist influence, a thin public record, a memoir in your 30s, and serving as a mascot for one of the wings of uh, the identitarian political mob. Remind you of anyone? Yeah. 
perhaps uh, one junior senator from the great state of Illinois about uh, 15 years ago. Well, uh, those descriptors also fit red diaper baby Pete Buttigieg, the uh, men's department mannequin from the Macy's in Mishawaka running for president. And uh, finally, somebody is exploring Pete's background a little bit more. And I'm not just talking about uh, his Marxist father, uh, who was a professor at Notre Dame and a great influence on him. There's the Marxist influence. Uh, I'm talking about a piece by Greg Kelly and Katie Horgan in the Wall Street Journal, both of whom are served our country. Kelly as a jet pilot for the Marine Corps, Horgan uh, as active duty Marine for six years, deployed to Iraq for 13 months. They take a look at Pete's service record because he talks about it a lot, sort of shoehorns it into debates across a range of topics, as they point out. And uh, in our experience, they write, those who did the most war talk, those who did the most in war talk about it the least. So Buttigieg would be on the other side of that. They mentioned that he uh, used a little use shortcut to get his commission uh, to, to uh, uh, affect his military service. He entered the military through direct commission in the reserves. The usual route to an officer's commission includes four years at Annapolis or another military academy or months of intense training at officer candidate school. ROTC programs and prospective officers to far-flung summer training programs require military drills during the academic year. Buttigieg skipped all that. No obstacle courses, no weapons training, no evaluation of his ability or willingness to lead. Paperwork, a health exam, and a background check were all it took to make him a naval officer. And that uh, rubs a lot of a lot of enlisted the wrong way, officers the wrong way. He writes of his reserve service that it, was, it will always be one of the highlights of my life, but the price of admission was an ongoing flow of administrative Tiva. Well, that's not how it's supposed to be. The authors write the paperwork isn't the price of admission, but the start of a long, grueling test. He talks about uh, his time at the Naval Station in Great Lakes, Illinois, where he was stationed. A relaxing contrast from my day job, spending time with sailors from all walks of civilian life was a healthy antidote to all the absorbing work I had in South Bend. He calls it a forced but welcome change of pace from the constant activity of being mayor. Hmm. And, And by the way, 2019 memoir. Shortest Way Home. That's the Pete Buttigieg memoir to make the additional Obama connect. He also talked about uh, his uh, brief time in Afghanistan. Uh, Felt a sense of purpose, maybe even idealism that can only be compared to the feeling of starting a political campaign. I thought back to 2004 and John Kerry's presidential run. Remember that it was during the campaign that I saw the iconic footage of his testimony as the spokesman for Vietnam veterans against the war. So he's barely deployed, and he's thinking about John Kerry and a political career. This uh, piece on Buttigieg's service is very instructive. More reporting should be done. This is the Dan Prof Show. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show.